Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. As we've been looking at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and now John, it's come to light that they're all quite different in different ways. How does John's Gospel differ from the previous three, Mike? Well, yeah, John really is a very, very different approach. I mean, it's clear that it's still a story about the same person. It is about Jesus. But both in his structure and his approach, he is very, very different to Matthew, Mark and Luke. Three Gospels that we said in a previous episode, scholars often call the synoptic Gospels, a word meaning from the same angle. They take the same approach in looking at the life of Jesus. And it's a sort of chronological approach. It follows him through his life. But John takes a an utterly different approach. He doesn't base his material on the other three Gospels at all. He comes at it in a completely different way by being much more selective of stories and teaching that He wants to use in order to be able to communicate his story. And in some ways, I I can perhaps best answer your question by reading to you from something that John himself says towards the end of this gospel. And at the end of chapter 20, he writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So there's our first clue. He knew, of course he knew, he was one of the original 12 disciples. He knew far, far more than what he gives us in this gospel. But he goes on to say, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's telling us there, I I know much, much more. Could have given you a lot more, but actually I have been deliberately selective of my material and I've picked out that simply which I think can help you come to a point of believing who Jesus is. That word believing there, by the way, could either mean in the Greek that you could start believing who Jesus is or continue believing who Jesus is. So it's both evangelistic and educational for God's people. So he's very, very selective in a way that the other gospel writers aren't. And he'll choose just seven of everything. So in this gospel, we're going to find seven signs, seven sayings, seven statements, seven witnesses. Why seven? Because in Jewish thinking, seven was seen as the perfect number, God's number. It was associated with the Sabbath day, the seventh day on which God rested and which he blessed. And so in traditional Jewish thinking, seven meant God's number, the perfect number. Yeah, I could give you lots more, John's saying, but I'm just going to give you Seven, seven of everything, the best number I could possibly give. And so he's chosen those seven carefully 
constructed his gospel carefully around it, not necessarily in a chronological way like the others have, but for this purpose that we might see that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God come into this world. You said that he was an eyewitness. Just remind us of you know where he fits into the picture. Yeah, he'd been one of those original 12 that Jesus had called, along with his brothers, originally a fisherman. So a working guy who'd worked with his hands, laboured hard, but called by Jesus to start fishing for people in future. And he was also one of the, if you like, the inner circle of three, because although Jesus had his 12 disciples, three of them, Peter, James and John, were particularly close to him. You know, we all need, we all have lots of friends, but we often have those friends that are particularly close that we share our heart with. And Peter, James and John were the three that he often took at special moments, like when he went up the mount for the transfiguration and John was one of those who were there. So he's one of the original 12, a guy who'd been called from catching fish who'd catch people in future and who had followed Jesus through the three years of his ministry. At what point in time did this gospel come together then? Well, we think this is later than the others. We said that Mark was probably the earliest, late 50s or early 60s, that Matthew and Luke followed, probably using Mark as their framework for their writing in the early 60s. But John comes later. And the truth is scholars disagree slightly on when, because we're not told in the text itself. Most scholars think it was probably around the 80s AD. So John's getting an old man now. There are one or two who think it might have been before 70 AD because in 70 AD, something very significant happened. The Romans destroyed the temple at the end of their war with the Jews. And some think that because there's so much in John where he shows the emptiness of the old Jewish religious ways, that if the temple weren't there, that would have been one of his best arguments for showing that the old Judaism was finished with. But in a sense, that's a bit of an argument from silence. Some think it could have been even in the 90s, but I think the consensus of opinion is it was sometime in the 80s when John is looking back as an older man and reflecting more on life. And it's interesting, as you get a bit older, uh, you do get a bit more reflective, you do think things through, you've got a longer perspective to weigh things up in. And one of the big things about John is his gospel is much more reflective. Mark, we said, you know, Jesus in Mark is always rushing on to the next thing, reflecting Peter's temperament and character as a young guy, always eager to move on. The Jesus in John is absolutely the same Jesus, but He's much more reflective. So we get longer blocks of teaching from Jesus. We get lots of his teaching given privately to his disciples rather than always publicly, as we find in the other Gospels. And I think probably in the 80s or so is is probably about right when John was older and he's now got that ability to look back and reflect 
on the life of Jesus, but also on how he has seen that work out through his own ministry. So there was some wisdom, some perspective, some insights that perhaps wouldn't have been there earlier in his life. And so how does he open the story? Well, like it says in the song, he starts at the very beginning, a very good place to start. John starts the story further back than any of the other Gospels. Mark just launches in with Jesus's ministry. Matthew and Luke start with what we would call the Christmas story these days. But John wants to take us back even further than that because he wants to underline that this story that he is going to tell us is is not just the story of a man, of a prophet, even of the Messiah. It is the Messiah who is no one less than God himself come into this world. And so his story begins, putting it simply, way back in eternity. His gospel begins with those well-known words, well-known to many, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And immediately, certainly any Jew hearing that would have instantly thought back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now here is John saying deliberately, in the beginning was the one he calls the word. He was with God from the beginning. He wasn't a creation of God because he's going to come on to creation in a moment. No, he's always been there with God. And then he goes on to talk about creation. Through him, all things have been made and without him nothing was made that has been made. So he starts his story in eternity with the word, his favourite phrase here for Jesus, existing with God from the beginning of all time. And he goes on to say at the end of this sort of prologue to the whole thing, in verse 14, that That word, that word I've talked to you about, who was there from the very beginning with God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Really interesting phrase he uses there in the Greek for made his dwelling. Uh, We could translate it literally tabernacled among us. And of course, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was that mobile tent that Moses had been told to create where the Ark of the Covenant would be and the very presence of God would be found there. It's as if he's deliberately picking up on that image that there was a point in history when the one who had existed from all eternity broke into human history and came and tabernacled among us the glory of God came and became flesh and the word he uses there really means I think we would have to translate it as something like he became flesh and blood to get the sense of the meaning he really did become you know listeners just pinch your skin and feel your bones and your hands at the moment as I say this this word who had been there from all eternity really became this stuff 
a real human being. And you mentioned that the number seven is very significant. It's a sort of selection of stories that John has included. Perhaps you could give us some examples. Yeah, this sevenfold structure is really central to John's gospel. So the seven signs that John gives us, actually, these are some of the you know, best known and, and most loved stories in, in the whole of the gospels. In chapter two, there's the story of him turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. In chapter four, there's the healing of the official's son. In chapter five, there's a healing at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter six, there's the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. In chapter nine, there's the healing of the man born blind. And in chapter 11, there's the one that causes all the religious authorities to start to turn against Jesus and plot against him, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, remember, he said Jesus did many other miraculous signs which aren't recorded in this book, but he's chosen these because for him, they pointed to something really significant about who Jesus was and why he had come. Let's just think quickly of what those significant points were. The water into the wine. It was a great story. And for the people who were there at the wedding, I'm sure they were exceptionally grateful that Jesus turned up and had accepted the invitation that day. He produces this vast amount of wine. Why? Well, just in passing, the whole village was invited to the wedding and a wedding lasted a week. So this is not Jesus promoting drunkenness here. He's saving the bridal party from the embarrassment, the social faux pas of, of running out of resources during the wedding. Water into wine. What does he use? He uses the water jars that were used for the ritual washings in Judaism. What's John after? He is after telling us that here is Jesus exerting his authority over the old Jewish order, you are not going to need your vessels for your ritual washings anymore. What I am bringing you transcends the need for these old Jewish rituals. And yes, of course, it's a, it's a miracle over the created order. But the deeper sign is what Jesus is bringing is far greater than what you have in Judaism. It's what it points to. The old Judaism is just like water. This is like wine. The healing of the official son is going to show us Jesus's authority over sickness. It's showing us it's a sign to the fact that there is no area of life that this word who has come among us cannot deal with. And interestingly enough, the official was an official in Herod's household, one who would turn against Jesus. The healing at the pool of Bethesda. This time, yes, it's another healing miracle, but it, it is also over invalidity and incapacity, but it touches the issue of a healing on the Sabbath and Jesus's authority to forgive sin. So there again, Jesus saying, what I am bringing is bigger than the old rules and rituals of Judaism. And it even I'm even coming as one who has authority 
to forgive sin. Well, you know, that didn't go down too well with the Jewish authorities because they would turn around and say, who's, who's got authority to forgive sin but God alone? And the point is exactly. Think about that. Feeding of the 5,000. Jesus's authority over creation and his ability to meet human need. And, you know, just as Moses had fed his people in the wilderness, he now is a greater Moses, providing miraculously from God. He's walking on water, uh, an odd one, that one, isn't it? But showing that the Lord of creation, the one who was there at the beginning in John 1, who caused all things to come into being, has control over it. Nothing is greater than him. The healing of the man born blind. Yes, Jesus has authority over blindness, physical blindness, but he will go on to talk about how he has come to set people free from their spiritual blindness too. And there's a long discussion about that. And the raising of Lazarus, yes, his authority even over death itself, a, a forerunner of what would happen in his own resurrection. So each time we've got one of those signs, they're there for a purpose. And they're all designed really to show who Jesus was and how he is greater than anything that Judaism has been able to give so far and how the life that he is bringing transcends that incredibly. Because you said, John, perhaps writing this in later life has made it a more reflective account. To what extent does it capture some of the conversations that Jesus has with individuals, some of the encounters where people are reflecting on things? Yeah, there are quite a few of uh, sort of more lengthy conversations in this gospel. Perhaps the best known ones uh, is the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three and the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter four. In chapter three, we find uh, Nicodemus, who is uh, a Pharisee, that is a practitioner of the law in great detail, but also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the sort of Jewish ruling council, who comes to Jesus and says, teacher, you know, we, we know that you must have been sent from God. You know, he knows, he can see something. He can't make sense of it yet, but he sees there's something, you know, and very often, even today, people see that there's something in this Jesus, but I don't know what yet. And, and he says, we know you must have come from God because of all that you're doing. And Jesus says, I, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And then there's this lengthy conversation, born again, what do you mean? born again. How, how can I go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus gently teases him. You're a teacher of the law and you, you don't know this. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about not a human birth. In other words, just being born a Jew can't save you, Nicodemus. You need to be born again by an experience of the Holy Spirit that will introduce you to God. And so we've got that long conversation between them. Chapter four is an, an even longer discussion between this Samaritan woman. Now, remember, Samaritans were despised by Jews. Uh, a good Jew who wanted to travel from Jerusalem 
to Galilee in the north would not pass through Samaria in between them. They would actually head east, cross the River Jordan, walk up on the other side and then cross back. They'd take the long way around anything rather than put Samaritan soil onto their sandals. And yet here is Jesus. They go through Samaria with his disciples and his disciples go off to to find food. And it seems like Jesus had deliberately gone through Samaria because John says now he had to go through Samaria and he stops at a well there while his disciples go off hunting food. And a Samaritan woman turns up on her own. She's obviously been ostracized because normally the women went together. And he says to her, would you give me a drink? And she's shocked. Think, what? You, you're a Jew. You're asking me for a drink? Because, of course, for a, an Orthodox Jew, the very moment the Samaritan woman touched the drinking vessel to pass it to Jesus, she would have defiled it, made it unclean. And so she says, what, what are you doing? A Jew asking me for a drink. And there's this conversation backwards and forwards. So if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you wouldn't say that. And she says, but you've got nothing to draw water with. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? And Jesus says, yeah, whoever drinks from this well will get thirsty, but whoever drinks from my well will never get thirsty. And he's like teasing her with these slightly enigmatic replies, getting her to think, what? Why? And then she goes on to say, well, you know, I, I definitely like water that never ran out. She's probably thinking it, it would be great to have a tap in the kitchen rather than having to come here to the well every day. And then Jesus sort of changes the conversation. Go and call your husband. And she says, uh, I, I haven't got a husband. And Jesus has what we would probably call a word of knowledge through the Holy Spirit. And he says, you're right when you say you've got no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the one you're living with at the moment isn't your husband. And suddenly it's like she's utterly shocked because here is a man telling her probably her deepest secrets that he could have no way of knowing other than through the Holy Spirit whispering them into her heart. And suddenly she she's on a process and saying, crikey, I, I see you are a prophet but then deflects the conversation again. Yeah, you, you see, the thing is, you Jews say you should worship on that mountain and our ancestors say you should worship on this mountain. And Jesus replies, listen, the time's coming when you'll neither worship on that mountain nor this mountain, but you'll worship by the Spirit because God is Spirit and his worshippers worship in spirit and in truth. And then she says, well, I know when Messiah's coming, he'll explain all that to us. And he says it. I'm he. And at that moment, the disciples come back and they're absolutely shocked, if not outraged, that one, he is talking to a woman, which is a very unseemly thing to do in the culture of that time, in public, a woman you don't know, and two, that she is a Samaritan. And so this conversation goes on and then he has to explain to them uh, what he has been doing. But out of that, the woman ends up going back to her village and she's so excited with whom she's encountered. And she goes back and says, come and see this guy who's told me everything that I've ever done. And because of that, he ends up staying with the Samaritans and being able to share the good news with them. So just two examples there of the more 
lengthy conversations and and the sort of backwarding forwarding he said she said he said she said and so we're, we're getting to see much more if you like almost of the personality of jesus coming out and certainly how he loved at times sort of making enigmatic statements we saw in both of those you need to be born again nicodemus you need living water to the woman because he's he's trying to draw them out and the picture that john is painting is of a jesus who stops to have those conversations makes time for people i mean in the case of nicodemus for example do we know what the outcome of that conversation was well actually i think we do because while nicodemus doesn't reappear in the coming chapters he does reappear at the end of the story, because in chapter 19, after Jesus has been crucified, we read that a guy called Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for permission to bury the body of Jesus. And we're told that Joseph was a, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret disciple because he was afraid of the Jewish uh, religious leaders. And we go on to read that with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, a phenomenal value there in that. So it looks as though while in chapter three, we don't see like, Oh, yes, he got born again at that point. He must have gone away, reflected deeply on this. And by the end of the story, he is committed to Jesus enough to join Joseph of Arimathea in taking the body of Jesus and investing this huge amount of money in ensuring that his body was buried in a proper way and embalmed with spices. So it looks like he made the step. Just coming back to John himself for a second, he, he was a fisherman, you said, and obviously became one of the 12. What kind of journey had he been on then with, with Jesus in that sense? <laughs> That's a really good question. Do you know, at the beginning of the story, Jesus uh, had a nickname for him and his brother. He called them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, <laughs> thunder boys, which tells us a lot about what they must have been like. They must have been pretty impetuous people, you know, pretty <clears throat> out there with it. And yet we see in the gospel, and not just in the gospel, but particularly in the letters of John, the three letters that we'll come to look at in a future episode were also written by the Apostle John. There is such a tenderness is the only word I can use. Certainly his letters are full of, of the importance of love. And I think in the Gospel of John, we see a tenderness of Jesus towards people, whether it's the woman at the well who'd been ostracized, whether it's Nicodemus who's searching, though Jesus could be very clear with, you know, the religious folk who thought they knew it all. So there has been a journey, just like we've seen with the others. I mean, Matthew Clearly a journey from being the collaborator with Rome who loved his record keeping to using his skills to write this gospel for Jesus. And now here we've got a guy who had started out life as a working class fisherman 
you know, probably fairly rough and rugged sort of guy who ends up being such a tender, devoted follower of Jesus. And in his old age, he is certainly incredibly sensitive and reflective and so grateful as he looks back and records this story of Jesus for us. And you mentioned that the gospel isn't his only contribution to the New Testament. Yep, there's three letters that we're going to be coming and looking at. not going to talk about those today because we'll look at those in a future episode. The very last letter of the New Testament, the very last book of the Bible, was also written by John, the, the book of Revelation. And by then, he's a really old man. He's in exile on Patmos. Definitely got time to be reflective there. So we've got here a guy who actually contributes a significant amount of material, a gospel, three letters, and the book of Revelation. What a guy this guy John was. So your recommendation for reading his gospel, what would it be? It wouldn't be the first gospel I would read, and it wouldn't be the first gospel I would give to someone who was searching. I've said before, I'd probably give Mark or Luke to someone who's either searching to know more about Jesus or who's a young Christian. Having said that, the senior pastor that I work with in my semi-retirement now became a Christian simply through reading John's gospel. I challenged him to read the gospel. He wasn't a Christian at this point, and he did, and he read it straight through and didn't get anything from it and then thought, I can't have read it properly, so started again. And all he did was read John 1 to 14. And by the time he got to the word became flesh, in his own words, it was as though Jesus came and stood in the room with him. And he was born again, all on his own there in the room with Jesus and was on the phone to me the next morning saying, something's happened to me, I need to talk to you. So it can be an evangelistic book. And remember, John's written this, that you may be sure that you may know the truth of what's written and that by believing you may have life. It's a book of life. So while it wouldn't instinctively be the book that I would give to someone searching or a very new Christian, it is a book that's designed to lead us into life, the life of the one who was with God in the beginning, who was the word from all eternity, the word made flesh and the word who deals so tenderly with people. And yet this is a book for taking your time over, I would say. It's it's a slow-paced book. To be honest, there are parts of John where even to this day I, I have to read it and then I think, let me just read that bit again because it is so rich and it is so dense and so reflective. So it's a book for taking your time over and for getting all the juice out of Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.